Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On the evening of February the 27th, 2009, 24-year-old Shane Travers stood outside Clontarf Garda Station. He was shaking and distressed. He'd just been through the unimaginable. A nightmare 24 hours from start to finish. He took a breath and tried to pull himself together. As he walked inside the station where his dad, Jesse, worked. Travers had been violently forced to hand over 7 million euro in cash to a Dublin criminal gang. It was a tiger kidnapping. The biggest in the state's history and organised by some serious Dublin criminals. The night before... He was relaxing alone at his girlfriend's home in Kiltee, County Kildare. The easy thing, Bill, is to get, set a team up to defend. His girlfriend, Stephanie, and her mother and nephew were out shopping together. But returned home just after 8pm. A very ordinary weekday evening. Within moments of putting their shopping down, a gang of six men suddenly burst through the door. Armed to the teeth and heavily disguised, they demanded everyone get to the floor. To prove they meant business, one of the attackers smashed a vase over Stephanie's head. They cable-tied the family and kept them there overnight until the sun began to rise. It was a tortuous few hours as the group guessed what fate awaited them. As dawn broke, the women and child were driven to a safe house in Ashbourne, leaving Travers alone with some of the gunmen. On their departure, he was sternly told, If you ever want to see these people again, you need to play ball with us, Shane. Terrified and shaking, he suspected what might be coming next. Shane Travers was a junior bank official for Bank of Ireland on College Green. As part of his job, he'd access to cash in the millions. And the kidnappers knew this. They'd been scoping him out for months. Mornings and evenings following his steps, taking note of who he crossed paths with, It was a well-planned operation. One of the kidnappers pulled him close and gave him one clear instruction. Go into the fucking bank and take out as much money as you can. With his girlfriend's family's life on the line, Travers was forced to head into work that morning. He arrived at the cash clearance centre and sat at his desk looking into space, trying to hold back the tears. How in God's name has this happened to me, he thought. The young man got through the day without arousing any suspicion, and then after lunch began to stuff as much cash as possible into a laundry bag. Fifties, hundreds, two hundreds. The bag filled up and up. Dermot O'Hearn was acting Minister for Justice during the heist. Subsequently, when it transpired that um, seven and a half million was taken and uh, it it was said to me um, that there was something like over 330 million 
uh, euro uh, literally sitting on the floor in in the vault uh, that the seven and a half million was taken from that the the particular individual if he had more bags and more arms he could have taken the whole lot and i questioned um, how in the name of god could 330 million be available to one individual in the bank Travers left the facility without any questions asked. Then, following the instructions, he headed out to Clontarf Dart Station to leave the money with a member of the kidnapping gang. Only once the cash was handed over would his girlfriend's family be released. The incident is one that will go down in Irish crime history. The biggest heist in the Republic of Ireland. It's not that often a gang makes away with 7.5 million euro. But the heist would have a much bigger significance in years to come. In ways that nobody could have predicted back in 2009. You see, one of the experienced criminals who was involved in the plot was a young man named Gary Hutch. the monk's nephew and a key part of the Kinahan cartel. The tiger kidnapping was the heist of his life, but Gary was red hot. There was no way he could hold on to the gains all by himself. So he made a decision to offload them, try and get the funds clean. And it's that decision that sparked a series of events and set the wheels in motion for the most brutal gangland feud Ireland had ever seen. It was a hugely botched hit and it didn't take Daniel Kinnan very long to figure out who was behind it. So this was blood, this was personal, this was his family ties and it wasn't a case of if, it was a case of when. The Kinnahans is brought to you by the Irish Sun. I'm Damien Lane. If you liked what you've heard so far, please leave us a review on your podcast app. It only takes a second. By 2008, Kinahan Cartel had been successfully operating on the Costa del Sol for just over three years. Life was good and the money kept stacking up. They weren't the only ones in town, though. You have to understand as well, the Spanish police are dealing with international gangs from a variety, whether they would be Russian mafia, Romanian mafia, Italian mafia. It's like a who's who of the criminal cartels down in the south of Spain. So they are very busy and they are seizing on a weekly level tons and tons of hashish. You've speedboats coming in from Morocco, you've Arabic gangs. So the Irish gangs fit nicely in that insofar as they're not really known. And they live above the radar. But Irish criminals, being Irish criminals, they couldn't live beneath the radar because they had to go shooting each other. Paddy Doyle's murder in February 2008 brought problems for the gang. As one of Spain's biggest tourist destinations, the government wasn't keen on seeing blood in the streets. It was bad for business. All of a sudden, there were a lot of eyes on the cartel. And they only have themselves to blame because the last thing the Spanish wanted was people to be murdered on Spanish soil. Because obviously it was bad for their image, their reputation and for tourism. So when Paddy Doyle is murdered, I think the Spanish authorities realise that they are dealing with a very, very dangerous criminal gang who posed a threat to Spanish society. The Guardia Civil, the Spanish National Police, were coming under political pressure to tackle the issue. Not just on the individual level either. The Spanish wanted to take the whole cartel down. So Operation Shovel was launched in 2008, in July 2008, by uh, the Spanish, Belgian, Dutch, Angarishiakana and the British police. So the murder of Paddy Doyle in February 2008 had proven the straw that broke the camel's back for all these police forces. Uh, the Kinahans had been linked to a number of murders in Holland, including that one of Simon Cowmeadow, who was Patrick Doyle's boss. Um, they had been linked to a number of drug seizures in Newcastle in the north of England. 
There had been a high-profile seizure in NACE of, uh, of drugs worth approximately three million. And uh, Daniel Kinnan was felt to be personally responsible for a cache of weaponry that was seized in Wimbledon in, uh, in London in or around the same time. Although most members of the gang were Irish, the Guardia Civil would be the ones to lead the operation. So a very expensive, round-the-clock surveillance operation was launched. Um, their phones were being tapped as best the police could, even though this operation was hampered by the, the phone security adopted by the gang in terms of ditching phones, in, to, in terms of talking on code, arranging to meet in person so they could discuss matters. The Spanish police were able to build up a profile and a picture of various individual members of the gang and identify what roles each member of the gang had and it gave them a good insight in, into their behaviour. The drugs business is a young man's game. It's risky, it's violent and it's totally unpredictable. By the late noughties, it became clear Christie was beginning to hand over much more responsibility to his two boys. There was a lot of trust there and he'd been deep in the game for over 30 years. Daniel was now in charge of the cartel's main business, drugs and arms dealing. In ways his character suited it. A wheeler-dealer, a charmer and a bit of an alpha male. He oversaw the lot. Christopher Jr., on the other hand, acted as a treasurer for the operations. Much more reserved character. He proved adept in keeping on top of the gang's finances and how their profits were being laundered. It was also clear from the wiretaps that by 2009, Daniel and Gary Hutch were very close. They concluded that Daniel Kinahan and Gary Hutch were best friends. Gary Hutch was given a prominent uh, role within the Kinahan organisation. His responsibility was to arrange drugs and weapon shipments, so the Spanish also concluded that, effectively, Gary Hutch had equal status. With Daniel Kinahan, who was the, the de facto leader of the gang. Operation Shovel gave the cops a rare insight into the intricate system the gang used to launder their millions. Spanish investigators soon realised they'd devised a four-phase approach to washing the cash. Phase one. The cartel had created a consortium of wide-ranging shell companies. Fake businesses operated by a variety of gang members. Let's just say they weren't quite profit-driven ventures. Nightclubs, restaurants, retailers, you name it, they had a company for it. A low-level cartel member would set up fraudulent bank accounts on behalf of these businesses. Once they had access to the financial services, the real operations could get underway. In phase two, Christie would spend top dollar on overly inflated goods or company shares. He would buy bank books on, on, on shares and how to deal with them. He would keep an eye out for the highest selling variety of sugar and instruct his brokers to buy it. But it had to be a particular type of sugar um, because that was the one that was selling for the highest profits. They would then flip the purchases and transfer the return income into a variety of tax havens in a bid to move the funds outside the EU. The Cayman Islands and Gibraltar were two firm favourites. In phase three, the gang would invest the clean money into a variety of stable assets. This was primarily in the property market or large-scale construction projects which could further grow their profits. This is often where we got to see Christie's entrepreneurial spirit come to the fore. The, the invention applied to these laundering uh, schemes had to be seen to be believed. They were always on the lookout for where they could make a quick buck. You know, when, when Gaddafi went down in Libya, they were investing in, in motorways in, in the reconstruction of the country. Uh, they were looking at Slovenia, you know, then an emerging member of the European Union. They were looking at Brazil. They were looking at Cyprus, where it was known laundering controls in Cyprus were a lot less stringent than other parts of the European Union, yet it was still within the EU, so it was therefore easier to operate. Finally, in phase four, 
fake invoices were created by non-existent companies for work carried out by Kinahan-owned companies. Big contracts too, never under 40 grand. Consultancy work, office installations, the money kept on spinning and spinning. It made it nearly impossible for the police to follow its trail. The tapes also gave the police valuable insight into how sophisticated some members had become in evasion and counter-surveillance. Not all were on the same page, however. There was one occasion in, in one of the wiretaps where Gary Hutch and Freddie Thompson are having a conversation and Freddie Thompson slips about having a gun and, and the type of bullet that it spits out and Gary Hutch says, put down the phone straight away. So there was obviously that mindset there that, that there, they could have been concerned that they could have been under observation by uh, the Spanish police. In May 2010, the Spanish felt that not so much that they had gathered enough evidence to act, but that they had possibly gathered as much evidence as they could because they were being continually frustrated by the gang with their phone security and their counter-surveillance. At the end of the surveillance operation, the decision was then made to move in and arrest members of the gang. And they moved in and it was in a a blaze of publicity. There were um, arrests in in Ireland, in Spain and in Holland. And, um, you know, doors were broken down by by police dressed in in SWAT-style uniforms and the whole thing was filmed. And it was released to the media as a great success. When the footage made it back to Ireland, it was a sight to behold. Christie was marched from his apartment block in his boxer shorts while Christopher Jr. copped a huge grin as he was bundled into the back of an armoured police van. The Guardia Civil and Europol seized computers, documents, ledgers and anything else they could get their hands on. The contents were unbelievable. They'd paint an important picture of the scale and depth of the Kinahan's global portfolio. In Brazil alone, they'd invested in a property portfolio worth over 500 million at the time. Brazil was an emerging property market. It provided less uh, stringent controls for him to plough his money into property as well. The investments weren't just in tourist resorts. Documents showed that in November 2009, they'd purchased masses of land near the country's Amazon region. Miles away from any national infrastructure. A Spanish wiretap of Daniel's secretary heard her tell her boyfriend that the cartel would look for a large loan from a Brazilian bank and use the land as a guarantee. Over time, they'd let the loan default. The only consequence was to hand over their worthless piece of Amazonian collateral. On the face of it, the cartel's operations in Brazil added to their mystique as criminal geniuses. Not all agree with that, however. John Mooney's security correspondent with the Sunday Times. Again, I go back to this concept that it's really important to understand that these are not uh, highly intelligent, incredible criminals that can spot gaps in the market better than any business people or other developers or something. They get drawn towards countries that have a really poor record of law enforcement and fiscal uh, uh, activities concerning money laundering. And and that's why they made those investments. I mean, you you don't hear many billionaires or multimillionaire property developers heading off to Brazil to invest out there because it's, it's not a particularly great environment for investment. Although the Kinahans were arrested on a multitude of offences, there was very little that was concrete in Operation Shovel's charges. The police had to gather all this documentation uh, that was seized in these raids and just go through it, and that was going to take them a long time, as was securing evidence from all the foreign jurisdictions where the gang was laundering its money, like Cyprus, Brazil, and uh, all these far-flung locations countries with which the Spanish didn't necessarily have a strong relationship and which they couldn't force things to move along as quickly as they liked. And it was only quite some time later that it became clear that they didn't have as much evidence they could use as they might have liked. 
Operation Shovel obviously was a very uh, well-resourced surveillance operation, um, around-the-clock surveillance, monitoring movements, identifying profiles, identifying uh, business and companies that the cartel were using. Obviously, a lot of their business enterprises were for the facilitation of money laundering, drug money. The problem was there wasn't enough evidence gathered. They would never have um, obtained you know, Daniel Kinahan's fingerprints on a huge stash of drugs, Christy Kinahan's, they were always third party. They were masterminding all the shipments, but they were never hands-on. So there was a problem of obtaining hard evidence and any factual evidence linking them. Christy, Daniel and Christopher Jr. would face a total of seven months in jail, as prosecutors found it impossible to pin them on anything concrete. The Colonel, John Cunningham, skipped time entirely as the wiretaps merely picked him up discussing the weather or his golf game. After being sent down previously for what he'd said on tape, he'd become regimentally discreet when discussing business. In time to come, though, the Operation Shovel raids would have much broader and far-reaching consequences. After the 2010 raids, there was a wave of paranoia which swept through the gang. Gary Hutch was unfortunate that he happened to be in Holland trying to source cars for the smuggling operation when the the raids were launched. And anybody who wasn't in Spain when the raids were launched and who wasn't arrested immediately came under suspicion. Police continued to monitor gang members' phones that day. And it was clear from the tapes that the raid caught Gary Hutch off guard. He didn't know what was going on. He was ringing other members of the gang to try and find out what had happened, including Freddie Thompson. But nonetheless, I mean, the, the Kinahans were, were paranoid. They were pointing fingers at everybody. And a, a finger came to be pointed at Gary Hutch, not just because he was in Holland at the time of the raid, but because he was also seen as somebody who had loose lips. When you're dealing with criminals, there's such a level of paranoia between them. A lot of them use coke. And it is very easy to be best friends one day and to be plotting to kill somebody the next day. That's the way they operate. Sometimes they have a a misguided belief somebody has done something wrong on them. Um, A lot of feuds start like that, both here and abroad. People are just paranoid. As the dust from Operation Shovel settled, the gang couldn't wait too long to re-establish their footing in the European drugs market. Life got back to normal pretty quickly, and the money began to pour in once more. With a fresh wave of confidence, after dodging any serious charges, Daniel set his eyes upon an entirely new business venture. The sport of boxing has long weathered connections with the criminal underworld. Alan Dawson is combat sports correspondent for Insider, based in Las Vegas. He believes there's two main reasons why the history of boxing has at times been controversial. One is just there's no barriers to entry. So if you've got a certain amount of money, it's quite easy for you to then make a foothold in maybe not just boxing, but in combat sports generally. Um, And then the second part is, um, I think it's just kind of considered the red light district of sports. Um, There's like, you know, your mainstream sports, no matter where you are in the world, like soccer and, and NFL. And then there's just the outlier, which is what combat sports is. In previous years, the Kinahans had dipped their toe in the sporting world. Pretty small time stuff, though paying jockeys to throw a few horse races and trying to fix the odd football match or two. For whatever reason, though, Daniel had much bigger ambitions for boxing. He wanted to reach the top of the industry. But not just that. He wanted to try and legitimise his name. Well, the police believe that um, MTK was set up purely as an egotistical model by Daniel Kennan. He was a long-time boxing fan and he'd been involved in a number of white-collar events uh, since 2008 to, to raise money for charity in Spain. Around this time, 
Kinahan crossed paths with Matthew Macklin, a Birmingham boxer with strong Irish links, who has no involvement in crime whatsoever. Macklin was a talented middleweight who held a multitude of regional titles across the noughties. By 2012, his career had climbed further and he was taking part in some major fights. On Paddy's Day that year, in Madison Square Garden, he narrowly lost out in a world championship belt to Sergio Martinez. They're going to stop it in Macklin's corner and Sergio Martinez has another 11th round knockout. Later on in September, he defeated Canadian boxer Wacky Malsin to get his record back on track. He sets him up for another right hand. And Jay Nady's going to stop the fight. Matthew Macklin comes back with a burst. The Alcine bout was his 33rd professional fight in a decade. At 30 years of age, Macklin knew he was approaching the twilight phase of his boxing career. He wasn't getting any younger. I would need a side venture to pay the bills when he retired. Daniel Kinahan was aware of this and spotted an opportunity. At some point, the pair had become close friends. So in or around 2012, they decided to set up MGM, which was um, Macklin's Gym Marbella. Um, they subsequently had to change the name of it for legal reasons. The gym's purpose was twofold. It was a physical space for fighters to train, but also acted as a promotional company to set up fights and manage a wide stable of international fighters. Daniel bankrolled the refurbishment of a state-of-the-art boxing facility in the heart of Marbella. Macklin, with a huge amount of knowledge in the sport, would look after the majority of the organisation's training and conditioning needs. Although it was the Tipperary fighter's name in the door, Daniel Kinahan was the one calling the shots behind the scenes. He kind of hoped that he might grow to be seen as a, a mover and a shaker within the boxing world. And it was around this time that he started to, to, to get the idea of putting together a stable of boxers that um, he could claim the credit for. And Macklin would be there as the respectable figurehead of the operation. Although Christie's son had practically no experience in the boxing world, he decided his prowess in the world of sales and negotiation would be transferable. He established himself as a boxing promoter and manager to a stable of impressive international fighters. Money was no object and they could undercut practically any other boxing promotion in the industry. Daniel Kenan didn't want to rip anybody off. He had enough drug money of his own. What he needed was the, uh, the kudos of being involved in this sporting world so he would arrange quite generous terms for his fighters and they appreciated him for it in terms of like what a management company or a manager might normally take as a cut from a you know a, a big fight that could be 10 10 percent could be 15 percent uh, with certain athletes at mtk sometimes that was zero you know that's and whether there were then gifts or presents you know we've seen some things come up on social media uh, you know, there are then kickbacks on, on another end. Uh, you know, that can be quite a, a big appeal for um, any athlete, no matter what stage of your career you are, if you're starting out and then going all the way through to when you become someone like a Tyson Fury. The first number of years were relatively slow for the group. But Kinahan's stock in the boxing world was rising. And in the years to come, he'd become a power broker for some of the biggest events in the sporting calendar. Kinnan would get the, the, uh, the reflected glory as a, a rather visible backroom member and somebody who held the purse strings and who, you know, boxers deferred to. And the MGM model was quite successful because boxers were used to being ripped off by, by promoters. It was clear Daniel got a kick out of the limelight entering the ring after his fighters' victories and getting his back slapped by those around him in the boxing world. Not just that, Kinahan saw it as an opportunity to wash his reputation, to try and somewhat legitimise the Kinahan name. I mean, Daniel Kinahan, I think, was quite clear. He was trying to um, become a businessman and put his criminality behind him, and he'd made a certain degree of success with that. 
But it should be stated, I mean, how stupid do you have to be to think you can be involved in organised crime to the level that he was at and simply just disassociate yourself from it and start off a new career? That, that to me, would be the actions of someone that's actually not very intelligent. After the Bank of Ireland raid in 2009, Gary Hutch had laundered the proceeds of the kidnapping with the Kinahan gang. This was another string to the cartel's bow. Other criminal gangs would launder their illicit cash through one of their shell companies. The Kinahans would take a small cut in exchange and clean up the gang's money in the process. It was something Christopher Jr. was particularly good at. It was a practice that would come back to haunt the gang in the years to come. But back in 2009, it was something they excelled at. And Gary Hutch knew this. He entrusted Daniel Kinahan through the extensive money laundering networks that the Kinahan cartel had um, to channel that money into legitimate purpose. By 2010, Gary hadn't received much of the laundered cash back. But the close scrutiny Operation Shovel brought in the gang excused this. A couple of years trickled on, and for some reason Daniel wasn't forthcoming with the cash. Since Gary's absence on the day of the Operation Shovel raids, things hadn't been great between him and the Kinahans. The paranoia was growing. It was all-consuming. And what was a temporary cold shoulder had escalated into him being frozen out of the gang. He made the investment. Um, he waited patiently on any returns. It didn't come. He w- would have known as well in the past Daniel Kinahan had uh, ripped other criminals from across Europe off in terms of money laundering. On May the 2nd, 2014, Jean Boylan, Christie's first wife, and Daniel and Christopher's mam passed away after a short illness. There was a massive turnout of friends and family at the funeral, including her sons Daniel and Christopher Jr., who'd flown home from Spain after hearing the news. As the cortege arrived at Mount Jerome Cemetery, most in attendance caught notice of a piece of graffiti across the road. On a grey concrete stairwell was emblazoned a statement that would not only make national headlines, but get circles in Dublin whispering. Gary Hutch, you rat, was spelled out in bright red spray paint. Until now, most outside of the gang's top brass would have been unaware of this unraveling friendship. It was an indication of how toxic his name had become. Not just that. Gary was still awaiting the return of his cash from the bank robbery. His patience was quickly running out. So relations between himself and Daniel Kinnan were were breaking down. Hutch would have known that um, Kinahan had ripped off several other drug dealers with whom he'd been involved, so he feared the same thing happening to him. And um, at one point, graffiti appeared on a Dublin church uh, ahead of um, Daniel Kinahan's mother's funeral, and this was a clear message. It was branding uh, Gary Hutch a rat, and it was a clear message to Hutch that um, he was on the outside of the gang rather than the inner circle now. By late summer of 2014, things between Gary Hutch and the rest of the Kinahan gang had gone from bad to worse. Paranoia was everywhere, on both sides of the table, and the embers of a feud were burning. Gary Hutch didn't have the, the, the money that he wanted. 
Um, I think there was a complete relationship breakdown between him and Daniel Kinahan, despite attempts uh, from Gary Hodge to reach out to Daniel Kinahan. That didn't yield any results. Even in the unpredictable world of gangland, fallout between the pair was difficult to wrap your head around. Only a couple of years before, they were the best of friends. So, at some point, Hutch decided he was going to, to strike first. Gary Hutch decided he'd have to kill Daniel. It wasn't a decision he took lightly. But with things escalating, it would be his head in the line if he didn't act quickly. On a hot summer night in Marbella, Gary organised for an associate to wait outside Daniel's home. He knew the gang were out partying, celebrating the birthday of an MGM boxing coach. What he didn't know was that Kinahan had left the party earlier and was already inside the house. The hitman was a very inexperienced figure, was loaded up to the gills on coke and um, panicked when a boxer called Jamie Moore, who wasn't involved in crime but was part of the MGM setup, emerged from the house. Jamie Moore described the incident to the All or Nothing podcast with Billy Moore last year. We've gone out, it was Danny Vaughan's birthday, we've gone out, walked into the place where I was staying and then just from behind the car someone come out and fucking... Shot Think me. they were looking to kill you, or was it just? Oh, well, it's nothing. Like, obviously, yeah. It's nothing to do with me. Yeah. It's like obviously wrong, wrong place at the wrong time. Um, but they've obviously realised they've got the wrong person because they've left me. They fired three, three bullets. Yeah. I got hit twice, but then they've ran. They've left me. I vaguely remember it because I was pissed. Yeah. I think to, to be honest, Bill, me saving grace that night. Being buried. He's being pissed. Yeah. It was a hugely botched hit and it didn't take Daniel Kinahan very long to figure out who was behind it. I think Daniel Kinahan by that stage was effectively the leader of his father's criminal organisation. Um, he would have had a massive ego at that stage uh, for him as leader. If someone tries to kill him, he would have had to respond to that. He would have had to show strength. He would have had to show a determination that if anyone did try and cross his path or, or did try and have him executed then that would be met with the utmost ferocity After the botched hit on Daniel Kinahan Gary moved to Amsterdam and kept a very low profile He split his time between Holland and Dublin but he was well aware he now had a target on his back In deep over his head he reached out to the one man he felt might be able to de-escalate things. He was relying on his, his famous uncle, the monk, to protect him. Hutch had a degree of protection in that regard. I mean, if it was anybody else, he would have been hunted out and shot down. But uh, because the monk was there to intercede on his behalf, a number of representations were made to Daniel Kinahan's father. Due to the previous relationship which had existed between Christy Kinnan and and Jerry Hodge, they were people who viewed themselves as equals on a par in, in the criminal world. There were a series of meetings held. They were in, in Madrid and in Malaga to thrash out of a sort of a peace deal. In the meetings between Christy Sr. and the monk, it was agreed that 200 grand would be paid to the Kinnahans as compensation for the attempted hit. That or Gary would be taken out. At the end of those meetings, there appeared to be an agreement where Gary Hodge could live um, in southern Spain and Daniel Kinahan had accepted the compensation which had been paid. Not just that, a punishment shooting would also be carried out against Patrick Hodge, Gary's brother. And he would be shot in, in the leg down a laneway near the Matter Hospital and that this would be carried out by Daniel Kinahan himself as a means of um, restoring his pride and him to be seen to not lose face. Patrick was shot in early 2015. He was brought into hospital around the corner but refused to cooperate with investigating Gardee. It was thought 
by the hutches at least that the whole matter had been buried. But Daniel Kinnan was not prepared to let this go. And um, sometime around the summer of 2015, Gary Hutch felt it would be safe for him to move back to the Costa del Sol. It was a glorious hot morning on the 25th of September 2015. Gary had moved into a flat complex in Estepona. There, he continued to operate his drug trafficking activities. It was still a tense time for him, but he threw all his energies into operating solo out in the Costa. If anything, it kept him on the straight and narrow. He was going out less and beginning to look after himself more. Gary Hutch was a creature of habit. He'd been out for a run and um, he, he was really into his fitness and had just been uh, leading a, a normal life out there. It was 11.20 in the morning and Gary was returning into the complex after finishing his morning jog. He headed towards the car park. The apartment block where he lived was an upmarket setting filled with families and young professionals. They weren't aware a wanted man was living among them. After the payoff and the meetings between the monk and Christy, Gary thought he was safe. But little did he know he'd been under observation for days. Tired from the run, he took his time walking down the slight ramp towards the underground car park. It was a dark and dusty place filled with luxury vehicles. As he turned the corner, he stopped dead in his tracks. It was a sight no gangster wants to see. A figure appeared from behind the car. A man in a black balaclava. He raised a handgun straight in his direction. Gary turned on his heel and ran towards the exit as the gunman tried to fire. He was in luck though. The gun had jammed and Hutch had a lead on the hitman. He sprinted to the top of the ramp and took a sharp right. Then he circled the pool trying to run for cover. The gunman on his tail, bullets ricocheted against walls of the adjoining apartments. Screams rang out as some of the neighbours believed they were bearing witness to a terrorist attack. And then Hutch made a very fatal mistake. He decided to, to run towards the back of the complex where he thought he might escape, but he ran up against a locked gate and by that time the gunman had caught up with him. Both men were exhausted, gasping for breath. With nowhere to go, Hutch turned around to face the assassin. He made one final plea for mercy. And then he was heard by witnesses to shout, no, 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 and to put out his hands and it was to no avail. He was shot several times and the gunman came over and finished him off with a round into his head. So this was done very publicly. The concrete ground flooded with blood. Hutch passed away instantly from his wounds. Witnesses scrambled inside their homes and rang the police. The gunman headed towards his parked getaway vehicle, but was so worn out from the chase, 
He couldn't even jog from the scene. The hitman had made one very costly mistake. He was barely able to trudge up the off-ramp out of the apartment complex to his getaway vehicle and drove away and dumped the vehicle. It was a BMW SUV in a, um, a nearby housing estate. He set the vehicle on fire and, and ran away, but somebody, a neighbour, had been watching him. And when he saw the vehicle in flames, he ran out with a fire extinguisher and put out the fire before it could really catch hold. In time, this allowed the police to get hold of a number of items, which would forensically link them to a man who'd later be convicted for the murder. The shooter in question was James Frizzy Quinn, a Kinahan associate operating on behalf of Daniel and the gang. Gary Hutch had also been a close friend of James Frizzy Quinn, who Gary Hutch had wrung on several occasions so that they could go and share prostitutes together. And it was another indication of how these people turned on each other when, when it suited them. Gary Hutch had done it to Paddy Doyle. Now he was the victim of it on the other side. Gary's funeral took place 10 days later back in Sean McDermott Street in North Dublin. Family members and close friends carried the coffin the short distance from the Hutch family home on Champions Avenue to the church. There, the congregation was led by Patsy and Kay, Gary's parents, as well as Gary's brother Patrick. Derek, Gary's older brother, was in prison serving 16 years for manslaughter. Tony Gallagher was an inspector in Mountjoy Garda Station at the time of Hutch's murder. He was tasked with organising the heightened Garda presence at the funeral. The district that I worked in had a mix of uh, Keenahan loyalty uh, supporters and Hutch supporters. So there was a an unusual mix of people. And as we know, they worked hand in hand. They worked together as as one team in the drugs trades that they were involved in. But immediately after that murder, you could sense the tenseness as we patrolled. You could sense the on-edgeness of the community from the palpable taste of fear that people were experiencing in that area at the time. There was a concern from people, who's going to turn up at this funeral? Who are the, who are the key figures going to be? But I think there were many associates of Gary Hutch connected to the Hutch faction who probably stayed away from that funeral because... They didn't want to be seen, you know, supporting the Hutch faction because there were people within the north inner city who would have grown up with the Hutches but firmly aligned themselves with the Kinahan cartel and that was simply for money. Inside the church, Gary's mother pleaded to fellow mourners. We don't want retaliation, she said. The appeal would fall on deaf ears. The Sunday Times' John Mooney. You know, criminal gangs feud, they behave this way. This is what they do. Um, there's never, it, it kind of, I've never yet, I've yet to encounter a criminal gang in the, you know, 25 years of being documented this type of activity, whereby you have people that are quite happy to make their money and live a kind of knife lifestyle and stay away from uh, uh, violence and stuff like that. It just never happens because it's an illicit activity there are no rules. You can't, if, the, if a problem arises, uh, you can't go to court to resolve your differences. So someone's going to try to usurp you or kill you and you're going to have to defend yourself, etc, etc. Trouble was brewing in Dublin. Neil Ring is a councillor for the North Inner City. He's known the Hutch family for decades. Obviously it was big news and big news around the area, but um, I think I, like a lot of people, said, oh God, this is, there's going to be repercussions for this, something, you know, this, is, this could be a catalyst and everyone was afraid it would be a catalyst for, for other re retaliation, etc. And unfortunately that's what happened, it became a catalyst for a lot of uh, issues around the area. 
you could see the clouds forming when that happened and you could see it was starting to get out of hand and it's 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 very easy for these things to get out of hand as i say the paranoia and the cocaine and everything else he was a hutch his name was was criminal royalty and for him to be shot dead and once it, it was confirmed it was him and the finger of suspicion immediately pointed to the Kinahan group the first question on everyone's lips was what's going to happen next they spoke to residents in the north inner city that they couldn't believe that the Kinahan grouping had targeted Jerry the Monk Hutch's nephew so this was blood this was personal this was his family ties and without question everyone was just waiting it wasn't a case of if it was a case of when the Hutch guy and his associates would respond to his murder next time on the Kinahan you think it's an exaggeration till you see the CCTV and you see this well armed well disciplined group of people coming in with Kalashnikovs and you realize at that stage things will never be the same again this is this is a milestone these people had set down a marker that this can be done you can turn up in the middle of the day in a hotel in dublin five six guys with machine guns you know um it, it you hadn't seen that since the days of the ira The Kinahans was brought to you by the Irish Sun. This series was hosted by me, Damien Lane, and produced by Urban Media. Leave us a review if you've enjoyed what you've heard so far. It only takes a second.